I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. La Liga might have moved its final round of fixtures to avoid a clash with the Eurovision Song Contest. But the Premier League sticks to tradition for a change. All games kick off at the same time on Sunday. I know it seems quaintly old-fashioned, but the last day of the season is usually special. It's also bittersweet. It's a combination of nerves for some, celebration and commiseration for others. The last two qualifying places for the Champions League have yet to be decided. Most eyes will be on Anfield. Jordan, can Liverpool salvage their season? Yes, I think they can. For me, it comes down to defining what salvaging means. And something I always, kind of mid-season onwards, have an internal battle with is, is it acceptable to change your expectations in accordance to how the season's going? Or should you always stick to what the initial standards and expectations at the start of the season were? At the start of the season, Liverpool would have been expecting to finish worst case second, to retain their title, a worst case come second. That's not going to happen. But when you put in the circumstances, all the injuries, it's a COVID season, personal tragedy with some of the key members of that team and management, is it acceptable to say, okay, we'll take fourth? I personally think that this game against Crystal Palace is harder than a lot of people think it will be. Their track record at home to Palace over the years is a bit of a checkered one. I remember Steven Gerrard's, I think it was his final game for Liverpool, was a defeat to Crystal Palace at Anfield. There was another famous-ish game a couple of years before that, where I think Alan Pardew, against all the odds, won there as well. So Palace have got a decent record at Anfield. So I don't think it's the game, it's the, it's the three-point wrap off the back of Palace losing to Arsenal last night that I think other people think it will be. But um, I, I think they can win this game. I think that the fans in the ground will make a big difference. I, I, I think it'll be a draw. I, I'm not convinced Liverpool win this game. I don't think they lose, but I don't think they win this game. A draw... I. My maths is awful, but I think if they draw this game and Leicester don't win, Liverpool then finish top four. And I think not finishing Champions League as champions is a disaster. So I think they'll take top four now, and I think they would deem that as a salvage season. So, yes. Yeah, you know, I, I tend to think that uh, you know, it will be a, a distinctive occasion on, on Sunday, won't it, Rich? You know, as, as Jordan said, you know, the fans will make their presence felt. I just want to dwell initially on on the nature of the team that they'll be watching. There seems to have been almost a return to basics in the Liverpool side, by necessity probably. I'd just like you to dwell on Nat Phillips. Scored his first Premier League goal at Burnley on um, Wednesday night. He does seem to have responded to the challenge that has been set for him. Is he typical of those type of players who basically come in and surprise people? I think so, yes. He, he's done really well since he's come in and, look, you know, he's been thrown in at the deep end. But he's really excelled and especially in the last couple of games or over the last couple of months or so, he's really come into his own. You know, he's aggressive, he's good in the air. And I think it's it's he's benefited from Liverpool just, one, going back to basics and, and two, 
seen a more settled side with, with Fabinho in front of them as well, providing that protection and, and insurance and his good reading of the play. It's it really helped the back line. And, um, you know, Nat Phillips was excellent again yesterday. Burnley always a physical challenge, but, you know, he, he ended the game with the most headers, most clearances and, and most duels won on the pitch, which, you know, away at Turf Moor is, 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 a, is a superb accolade to have. Whether his long-term future will be at Liverpool or elsewhere, it remains to be seen. But he's definitely given himself every opportunity to, you know, if he's not part of the squad next season, to even earn himself a move away. And I think he'll be a great addition to, to, to any side based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, it's an, it's inevitable, isn't it, Jordan, that at this time of year, we actually start looking almost towards next season and the, the potential makeup of teams. You know, we'll talk about, you know, transfer issues, a bit later. Hello, Harry Kane. How are you? We're already talking at Liverpool about Fabinho being offered a new contract and also Alisson being offered a new contract. He deserves a statue, doesn't he? I'm going to be miserable Mo here. Oh, um, Mike, I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But I mean, look, the, 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 him scoring uh, that header, and it was a brilliant header, a very important header, a dramatic header, and the fact that he's a goalkeeper, I understand. The, the reasons why it got the back page and the coverage it got. I totally get it. I also understand within the context of, you know, a man that's lost his father only a few months ago, the emotion that that, that win gave him on the pitch as some kind of um, release for, for something that I think he's been he's have, had pent up for quite a while in on a personal level. But, I mean, if you get back to the football, uh, I mean... <laughs> Give him a new contract because he's had a really good couple of seasons, maybe. And I think this year he's not been great for various reasons. But if he's getting a contract because he gave a really good interview and he scored a winner in, <laughs> in a crucial game, I mean, come on. It's like, really? It's, I, I, it was a little bit of a stretch. And I think they've capitalised on a bit of, a, of PRing here. And it, well, listen, fair play to them. That's it, what, what they want to do. It, I, I just need to know the justification for the contract extension. If it's based off of they want to tie him down for the next five years, because the last two years he's been phenomenal and they see him being a key part in them regaining their title, fair enough. If it's off the back of this emotional roller coaster of him scoring this goal a few days ago, nah, I'm sorry, but if it's a bit, bit, bit mushy for me. But that's just me. <laughs> oh, dear. OK. Whenever you are near Mr... Jordan Jarrett Bryan, uh, you're in a romance-free zone, folks, so uh, hey-ho. I suppose it is almost inevitable, isn't it, Rich, that in these situations, egos are bruised. You know, we had the so-called spat between Sadio Mane and, and Jurgen Klopp. But in that context of commitment to a football club, how significant is it that Virgil van Dijk should elect not to play for Netherlands in the Euros to make sure he's right for Liverpool for next season. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think it is really significant. I mean, I wasn't surprised that he wasn't going to make the Euro squad. To be fair, I mean, say he hasn't featured since since his injury. But you know, if if he was to go and play this summer, it's every opportunity and every chance that he could exacerbate that injury and. You know his bread and butter lies lies with Liverpool. I guess that's the team he's contracted to. That's the team he's going to give give his all to. And you know he'll he'll be a fantastic addition back to the squad when when he returns. And I think on on the on the Mane situation that you mentioned there, I think it is a bit of ego bruising. But I also think he's maybe just a bit frustrated in his own play. You know nine goals, eight assists this season isn't bad on paper. But you know it is a drop off from last season where you know he doubled that goal total last season. So the element of that element of fatigue and and that you know it does it does build frustration. So I think from his perspective, is definitely something that you know we we all know what Manny can bring to the side and he'll come back stronger next season. As will Van Dijk, you know. Hopefully, if, if this summer goes well and his rehab stays according to plan, then Liverpool have their their linchpin back and you know someone who is a real leader for the side. I, I think it's very significant. I, I agree with Rich as well that the Van Dijk not going with Holland to the Euros because let's not forget the last two championships, World Cup and Euros, Holland didn't make it. 
So there's, it's not like Holland are guaranteed to make it to majors, and I don't know how many more Van Dijk will have left. So for him to decide that he's going to give, he's not, he's going to miss this one. There's no guarantee that Holland make it to the World Cup and the next Euros. So I think that's significant. And one of two things has obviously happened here: either he's so not close to fitness that it was never a question of him going anyway, and he's just like, he's, it's just not fit. He can't go, or he's 80% fit, could have gone, done a job. And Liverpool have won a bit of a battle here in terms of club versus country, in terms of either he's decided, I value my season with Liverpool next year more than the summer with winning something with Holland. And I think that that says a lot about Van Dijk. I think it says a lot about Liverpool if they have managed to kind of have their way in protecting their man and their asset for the longer term rather than him going on in international duty. And on Mane as well. I'm always interested in players that are really good, have really good seasons, and then have a shocker and how they respond. So I'm really keen to see next year how Mane responds. If indeed he's there, I don't think it's out of the question that he, he you know, they may not, they may that they may move him on to another club. So if he is at Liverpool next season, I'm fascinated to see how he responds because he was phenomenal two years prior to this season, and he's been very, very, very poor this year. So. How he responds and comes back from that poor form, I'm, I'm quite keen to see. And equally, Van Dijk, I'm keen to see how he comes back to form because Diaz, who I think is going to clean up on all the awards this year and may win the Euros with Portugal this year, that may be a bruise to Van Dijk's ego as the best defender in the world and seeing how he rises to that challenge in the Premier League next year. Yeah, let's concentrate on Sunday if we could, though, Rich. And nostalgia in the form of one man. Roy Hodgson. It's his final game in charge of Palace at Anfield. Probably quite fitting, although he did have an unfulfilling spell at Liverpool. Let's have a, a wider retrospective if we could. What do you think he'll be remembered for? England or maybe the breadth of international club experience that he's had? I, I think it, it will be the latter. I mean, obviously, the England situation... Was was a was a slight punctuation on 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 his on his career, especially with the way you know, England went out at that Euro twenty sixteen, of course. But you know, I think he'll be remembered as you know he's an astute tactician. He, he obviously he's a he's a gentleman. He's well respected, well liked uh, across across the world. You know, not not just in in this country. And he has shown a track record of you know making players better, exceeding expectations, and holding his own where people may have thought that he wouldn't have done. You know, I look back to, you know, 2010 and what he did with Fulham when he took them to the Europa League final and, you know, those couple of seasons, you know, he he was fantastic. And, you know, even, you know, consolidating Crystal Palace in the Premier League, you know, you look at their past finishes, 11th, 12th, 14th and comfortably in mid-table this season. It 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 goes to show, though, this is someone who's who set up, who sets up teams, you know, with organisation, with hard work and he gives his flair plays an opportunity to to showcase their abilities as well. So, yes, of course, there's the England situation, but I think on, on the whole, you know, he's a very well-respected individual and, he, and he's had a great career. I think, um, as Richard says, I think he is a well-respected individual globally. I'm not so sure that he's universally liked, though. I, I hear conflicting reports about this gentlemanly figure that, that Richard mentions and other people I've heard mention about him. I, I've heard that he can be quite difficult at times. He's a man that, in some ways, when dealing with the media, can be quite set in his ways. Let's not forget his conduct when England got knocked out of those Euros in that press conference, where there was a little bit of arrogance about him saying that he didn't understand why he was even there. There's that very famous viral clip that's gone round of him doing an interview after a game. I think he was at Palace, where he's speaking to, I think, a match today, BBC, who presents a reporter. And off camera, there's some things that were said that didn't make Roy look particularly very nice in that, in that light there. But what I do think is interesting about Roy Hodgson, and watching the Arsenal Palace game last night was interesting because I think Roy Hodgson's an example of perception of how someone looks. So, and I think Arteta's the same. Arteta looks a certain way, and maybe I've bought into this whole the whole seducing of the words he says and the kind of the, the rhetoric of being no-nonsense and non-negotiables and stern face and having pretty hair and buying into that, meaning that he's a progressive manager, results are showing that maybe he's not. Whereas Roy Hodgson is someone that maybe looks a bit dour, a bit old man, a bit out of touch, but actually he's got a, a Crystal Palace team that are quite young, vibrant and exciting. At times, at times, playing some decent football. That Palace squad, Barzaha has been 
been a championship team for about five years and to keep them mid-table for the last three or four years, I think has been an achievement for Roy Hodgson. So whilst I don't completely agree about this kind of loving that he's this gentlemanly figure, because I've seen and heard conflicting reports on that, I do think in terms of his output on the pitch, the way he looks and I think plays into the, the, the stereotype of how good he actually is. And I think that the England debacle did punctuate a career that I think overall has reaped more good than bad. Let's not forget Fulham. He took Fulham to a Europa League final. That deserves some respect for sure. Yeah, I suppose in these sort of debates, you can only speak as you find. And I've always found you know, there have been some press conferences that I've been in where Roy Hodgson has been extremely self-defensive, almost sometimes to the point of sourness. But I get that. You know, I, these guys are under pressure and they are conditioned to resisting, you know, second judgments or, or, sorry, second guessing or instant judgments. So, yeah, I think he's got to be judged on, on his body of work, which as a coach is, I think, terrific. I think the, the question is... Are we seeing almost here, Richard, the last of a breed? Because given the pressures and the constant scrutiny of modern football, can you ever see another manager lasting until he's 73 years old? Now, obviously, you know, Neil Warnock's around about that vintage at the moment, but, you know, that's, a, that's an age, really, for a, for a football manager to get to, isn't it? It really is, and I think what you mentioned, especially about the, the modern game, you know, that so many games... The, the, the constant pressure that they were on. And also, looking at relative turnover of managers, especially over the last, let's say, even five, ten years, let's say average is around 18 months to two years, you know, when you do get to, to that age, you know, is it, will you have the appetite to, to keep moving around the country or around the world or around Europe even, let's say, uh, keep moving your family, the tolls that it does take take on, you know, yourself and, and your health? So... <laughs> Have we seen a, a, a dying breed? Perhaps, as you say, looking at looking at the age ring, and and also as well, you know, you, you look at Chairman now. A lot of the, the the managerial appointments are kind of young, fresh, hungry managers looking to prove themselves. And although they may be seen as more more gambles, it, it kind of fits into this whole trusting in in the kind of young, progressive managers as opposed to the the more experienced that 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 we've seen over the years. It'll certainly be interesting to see which way Crystal Palace leak, leap, won't it, um, Jordan? Uh, who do you think will succeed him at Palace, which obviously, you know, lest we forget, is Hodgson's hometown club? I think it'll be Lampard. I think it'll be Lampard. And I thought it'd be Lampard as soon as he got fired from Chelsea. It fit, and, I, and by the way, I caveat that by saying I don't think Lampard should get that job, but I think he will get the job. I think that... The, the academy at Crystal Palace produces so many young players. I think that lends itself to someone of Lampard's standing. I think staying in London, I, I don't think he'll take a job low, lower than the Premier League. So I think it'll be a Premier League job, a Premier League club. And, and, and I think that they will give him the time. And I know they got burned with the whole De Boer appointment a couple of a few years back. But I think they will see... And also, as an Englishman, I think they'll like the transition of an English grandfather, if you like, an elder of the game, kind of going out as someone at the complete opposite end of his managerial career coming in. I think that that will, that will turn on Palace a little bit. So I, I would put a fiver on, on, on Lampard getting that job. I think he'd like that job as well. The likes of Eze there, Zaha being there. I think those guys would, would, be, would be really excited by the idea of someone like Lampard coming in. I just think that he should go lower down. I think the Chelsea job came up as a bit of an anomaly for him and it didn't go well overall. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a kind of question of him going down again and building himself up again, maybe the championship. But I, I think that's where they will, they will be looking. Yeah, it's such a shame, by the way, isn't it, that Eze, who's been one of the standout players of this Premier League season, for me anyway, looks like he's not going to play again this year because of a training injury. Just on that managerial situation, though, Rich... Sean Dyche. Now, I don't know what more he can do to actually prove himself capable of um, what, with the greatest respect to Burnley, would be a bigger job, you know, at a palace with all the you know the the attention that London gives you, or even whisper it, um, Tottenham. I'd love to see him uh, getting amongst the people, the, the, those underachievers at Spurs. Um, what more can he do? 
You're absolutely right. I mean, you, you look at what he's done at Burnley, and it seems as though you know he's taken them as 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 far as he can do. As as you ask the question, what more can can he do? He's taken a, a group of, of of players who is is not insulting to to say you know relatively average to consistently perform at, at Premier League level, while also you know bringing in, in the likes of Dwight McNeil, you know a, a promising young player who, who's now flourishing on on the, on the left flank for them. And, you know, this is someone who has been hamstrung, you know, in terms of, you know, being given funds for transfers. Yeah, he, he, he still got the club to, to perform at, at an amicable level. Of, of course, you know, the, the recent form isn't great. But if you look at the whole body of work over the last four or five years, you've been very consistent. You know what you're going to get from Burnley. You know what you're going to get from a Sean Dice side. And they, they make it very difficult for teams. And... It'll be it'll be an interesting summer to see whether he 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 he'll kind of fit in with with the new ownership there under under ALK. I know they've got exciting plans. It's just whether their ambitions will align with Sean Dyche's. But if if they don't, I'm I'm pretty sure he'll have a long list of suitors there. And it'll be interesting to see what his next move would be. Should he should he should he leave? Mm, yeah, Chelsea, Richard, are home to Fulham on Sunday. Champions League qualification is back in their hands. There's a lot of talk about Thomas Tuchel being lined up for a longer-term contract. He only signed an 18-month one. If he signs one, what does it mean anyway, apart from a guarantee of decent compensation? But I suppose, is it about rewarding achievement? And, you know, let's face it, he has made an instant impact, hasn't he? 100%. And I think if, if they go on to win the Champions League, then... I do think he he should he should be given uh, you know an extended contract even if it is a kind of to, to earn a severance pay at 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 the end. But I think giving him the the short term contracts initially is probably a clever move because it is meant that is is put pressure on him to to make that instant impact and and we've seen that he's made Chelsea difficult to break down, which was one of their key issues under Lampard. Although they were good going forward, they conceded far too many goals. And you know what you're going to get from Chelsea now. You know you've got they've got the double pivot in midfield, which provides protection for for the back line. And you know they've got forward players who who can cause problems. Of course, Werner's form is is a, is a concern. Although he does have decent qualities, which he does bring to the side, which I guess we'll come on to shortly. But he, uh, he he's done well. If he was to win the Champions League, it would be the icing on the cake of what has been a, a decent start for for him. I guess moving forward, if they are to progress. Although, of course, I mentioned their four players, but they, 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 they haven't... Maybe the fans would want to see more going forward in terms of output. They've had three nil nil draws under him, four, four games where they haven't scored, which for a team in, 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 a, in the top four, you're probably looking for more. You know, they've scored the least amount of goals in, in the top seven. So that's something for them to build on next year. With the talent at their disposal, they can definitely build on that. Yeah, it's interesting you, you, you mentioned um, Werner there. Jordan... The riddle of Timo Werner is no closer to being solved, is it? You know, football loves a trier, but if you look at it and you're looking at it in terms of areas of improvement for Chelsea going forward, their top scorer in the Premier League is Jorginho, basically who's the penalty taker. Yeah, and I, I I never understand why strikers, first of all, don't take penalties, especially strikers that are... I mean, he's not struggling for goals, but he's not having he's not ripping it up either. And if I was Timo Werner, to get that goal tally up, I'll be fighting with Georgina for penalties. And listen, give me the ball. I'm taking this as well now. But yeah, I, I actually think that Thomas Tuchel's job will be linked, and his position at Chelsea will be linked to the success of Timo Werner. I think if Chelsea don't get top four this season lose to Manchester City in the Champions League final and don't start next season on fire, I think Tuchel's gone by Christmas. And I wouldn't say that against about any other club other than Chelsea and, and their standards that they set. And I think unless Timo Werner can have a, an improved season next year, and the stats actually aren't as bad as people think. His, his, his stats for what he's, you know, the goal creation, his goal scored, it's not, it's not great, but it's not shocking either. But I think he would definitely have to have a better season next year, if indeed they keep him, for, for, for him to really prove and justify the, the, the money that he's being paid to, to, to be there. I also hear a lot of people, Mike, talking about the fact that, you know, his movement's really good and he's a trier and this and that. And I'm like, 
that's all well and good, but for that kind of money, I can move really well and I can try really hard. He's got to put the ball in the back of the net. He's an, he's meant to be an elite European striker. All those traits that he I think he does bring to the game are very, very evident and very important. Don't get me wrong. But you've got to be scoring goals. And let's be let's not be, be around the bush here. Some of the chances that he's been missing are shockers. They're absolute shockers. So I think next year, he will have to really hit the ground running next year to keep Tuchel in a job to ensure that Chelsea can really maintain the standards that Abramovich uh, expects of his club. Mm. What about Leicester, Rich? You know, it looks like on the balance of probability, they're likely to miss out on a Champions League place, despite, and I owe this fact to Daniel Storey, despite being in the top four, in the Premier League for 68 of the previous 71 games, faltering at the last. They're going to finish fifth again by the look of things. Looking on the positive side of this season, obviously the fans are happy with a, an FA Cup win because supporters seek glory while owners tend to seek income. But it means that Leicester don't really need to sell their best players anymore, doesn't it? You know, when we look at Kante and Chilwell and Maguire and they've had to sell over the last few years, they're in a much stronger position than probably anyone. And, you know, we said on the previous podcast, you know, they've basically driven a wedge straight through these so-called top six. Absolutely. I think... You know, if, if if you look at it as as a whole, you know, looking at the at the initial points of um, cup glory for fans or, or what the ownership want, I think looking at the scenes on on Saturday and seeing Coon Top hugging the trophy and you know, as uh, my colleague Rob Tanner put it afterwards, even sleeping with the trophy, uh, you know, <laughs> it it goes to show that those kind of fairy tale moments are very much edged within a, a long-term strategy, which you can see at Leicester in terms of playing progressive football and, and from the top down, having a, a consistent ethos, which is, is bearing fruit. So, yes, it, it would be incredibly disappointing if they don't qualify for the Champions League, considering that they've been, you know, up there for, for so long over the last two seasons. But as you say, they're in such a strong position now, very, very strong ownership, which everyone buys into. And it's something that they can build on, which they, they do need to build on that now. They they have the quality to, to be in and around those positions. But as you mentioned, faltering at the last. And maybe this summer they, they need a few additions just to take them to that next level because they have a lot of good players, which you all know, you know, Fofana, Tielemans and Didi. You know, James Madison will be coming back to full fitness at the beginning of next season. Ian Atcho's coming to good form. So if they can build on that and really have the consistency to to see themselves over the line, then I think you know, they, they do have something to build on. I think they'll be disappointed, obviously, for not getting into the Champions League. But as you rightly said, they've 100% driven a wedge in, into the so-called Big Six. And uh, I, I think they'll be here to stay. I, I agree with Richard completely, actually. I think Leicester have the potential to do something very special here. I think that if I'm the owners of Leicester, I'm telling Brendan Rodgers next season, we expect the next couple of years, top four. I think they have the chance, Mike, to really oust Arsenal and Spurs in, in that group and clutch of clubs and become, you know, after the two Manchester clubs and Chelsea, the next kind of big club in this Premier League. I love the way they 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 run their club and do their business. I, I've forgotten who it was, forgive me. They've signed a player already um, who are... A lot of, I've seen quite a bit of him, my mind's gone blank. But the fact that... That's the one, yeah. The fact there's wrapping up strong signs like that already before the season's even, even even finished says to me that that's a serious club with a plan, with the right people in place and with a vision to really, really push the boundaries. Their expectations now, Leicester, should be top four, top four, top four. Every six. That should be the standard now. Top six should be a bad year for Leicester. And that might seem like a big shout because it's Leicester, but if they want to really... Arsenal and Spurs are not serious clubs. Leicester have the chance to really become a serious club. I, 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 I love the way that they, they, that they move and what, they, and what they're doing. Indeed, he's a player that I thought Arsenal should have signed two years ago. I think one of the most underrated still players in the Premier League. I think he's a brilliant midfielder. And I just feel like they have a chance to really, really assert themselves as, an, as the big team. For Leicester to win a, a trophy and finish top four is a stretch for Leicester. Top four or a trophy is now what they should be expecting every year. And the fact they've, they've said for the second year in a row, I, I think will happen, miss out on top four. I, the, the FA Cup negates that for me. 
Winning the FA Cup for me, I think, justifies the falling out of the top four of the last moment. So for me, they've got a top manager, a top infrastructure, some top players that Richard mentioned there. If I'm the owners, I'm saying, right, top six, minimum. Minimum. But really, I, want, I expect now next year, top four. If they can come top four, top four, top four, that for them is, is, is I think, a, a massive move in the right direction. No, just, just to kind of continue on, on what Jordan said there, I mean, what, what you have to remember as well is that Leicester themselves have been really unlucky with injuries. They've had so many injuries this season to, to key players um, in key positions, yet they've maintained that consistency. And I think, you know, all the credit go, goes to Brendan Rodgers for keeping that consistency going. So, as, as you say, if, we get, if, they, if they can get their, their, their top players back, you know, the likes of James Justin, the likes of Harvey Barnes, you know, as, as I mentioned before, Madison getting back to full fitness. With, with new silence, Sumare, maybe a new striker as well. Yeah, I I really think that you know top four should be where they should be next season and and something to build on 100. You know, Leicester are at home to Spurs on Sunday. There's a club. If you take the evidence of the Wednesday night game, their defeat to Villa. If you take the evidence, not just on the uh, on the pitch, but what was going on around the game. There's a club which is which rudderless, lacks values, and there is a complete disconnect between the the fan base and the board and the ownership. What does it say when you charge the highest prices, £60, for the what let's call the welcome back game at the end of the season? You put those fans at the high tiers, so it means that the sponsors get their exposure, You've got, you know, there's some, obviously a lot of discontent at the time, leave the out chance. Now, that was a real, to me, a club. I just lost any sense of what it should be. What do you think? I, I totally agree, Mike. I, I don't know what Spurs are anymore. Under Pochettino, it was very clear what they were trying to do and they came close to winning a trophy and their, their, their model was clearly developed from within, shrewd signings, try and have a punch at the big two trophies, the Champions League and the Premier League, and they came close to both on two occasions. They scrapped that, they went for the Mourinho model, right, forget the, the investment in youth, you know, we're going to just basically spend a bag of money on a superstar in Gareth Bell and you know, came out the brand of football, just win us a trophy. That didn't work out, they've moved on from there. And I think they're kind of floundering on, as to what the next kind of move is. And I think before they even think about the appointment for the next, the next, um, the next manager, they have to do that work, which I think United kind of did, but didn't do. And Arsenal, again, kind of did but didn't do in following up from Ferguson and Wenger, what kind of club do we want to be? Because once you establish that, everything else then becomes a bit easier. Okay, we want to be this kind of club. Okay, therefore we need this kind of manager. Therefore, these are our budgets. This is how we connect with our fans. I think the thing that came out of the Super League fallout was the, just the lack of connection with the fans and supporters about where their club were trying to go and what the rationale behind it was. Spurs are a mess right now. I think both North London clubs are a mess, to be honest. I'm sure we'll do Arsenal on, an, on another, another occasion. The difference between Arsenal and Spurs is, even in a mess, Arsenal still get to finals and invariably win them. Spurs fans aren't even getting to, you know, they're not even winning the Cups. It's looking like Harry Kane, I'm sure we'll get on to later on. He may well leave. And the, the fans yesterday, uh, I spoke to a few this morning, just a couple of my mates, and one of them was there, and they were saying that it was a mess. It was just a mess, and that was off the pitch. Forget the actual result on the pitch. It was an absolute mess, and Spurs fans don't know what their club are going to be. I will say, though, there was free food before kickoff, So it was 60 quid, but it was free pies, free burgers, free chips, free food, all before kickoff. So they can't entirely complain about the experience. Oh, that's fair enough. <laughs> I didn't know that, so thank you for that. Um, at least they've got full stomachs, I suppose. When you think about it, though, all the attention. We've got a summer saga coming here, haven't we, Richard? Harry Kane. There was a really poignant photograph of that last night. Of you know, and to give some context to that photograph, half a dozen of the the main players did an initial lap of honour or whatever you want to call it. Gareth Bale, Harry Kane, Alderweireld, Lloris, Son, Deli Ali, Hoberg. And it was 40 minutes later when basically the, a certain smattering of fans wouldn't go home. 
And so they wanted the, the, the whole team out and they came out. And there's this lovely photograph of Harry Kane essentially applauding an empty stand which is shrouded in darkness. If he's going to be his last game, that is no way to go out, is it? No, you're, you're absolutely right. I know the image that, that you're speaking about and it's incredibly poignant because what Harry Kane has done for Tottenham, let's be honest, what he's done for the club, the goals he scored, the, the quality that he's brought to the side, it, it, it would be a, a shame that that is his farewell. But at the same time, as you mentioned, you know, we've got a summer saga ahead. It, is that is that a, a metaphor for, for where Tottenham are at the moment? You know, you mentioned them being soulless, losing their identity. And of course, this past year has made, made things difficult in terms of the situation, hence why you no know, fans there, etc. But that was such a, a poignant image that it, I think it just kind of personified where and what Tottenham are at the moment, unfortunately. And yeah, you know, it'll be an interesting summer. And, you know, Harry Kane obviously keen to get things done before the Euros in terms of his future. He's done all he, all he can at the club. Even this season, where it's not been a great season, to, to be the top goal scorer and top assist maker is, is a superb achievement for someone who's also had his injury problems as well. He's, do, he's done everything that he can. I don't think any Spurs fan can begrudge his ambition, especially now at, at, at his age. You know, you, you want to be winning things. Of course, the individual accolades are, are important, but, you know, I'm sure the Spurs fans will completely understand We've had we've had our chances to win trophies in terms of the league and and, and the Champions League, but it's, we've fallen short. The team's changed now. It's definitely going to look like a transition period. Harry Kane does, doesn't deserve to be around for a transition period. He he's done his time. He's done his bits. He scored his goals and provided for the team. And I think for him, it's, it's really important that he moves on. It, it, even if it's for his own personal legacy, you know, to win trophies. I don't think anyone can begrudge that. I think the richest point there about the, how the fans feel about him potentially leaving is really important because I think Harry Kane has played a really, really shrewd game here via the media. He's filtered out a couple of lines over the last couple of months about, you know, there was an interview he did, I think, just before the, the Caribou Cup final, where he spoke about, you know, I need to win big trophies, I need to win big stuff. That was the first in a, in a series of things he put out there intimating that he he needs to leave and wants to leave. What he's done is he's framed it really well in that the Spurs fans now, they're not begrudging him wanting to leave. They're actually saying, we let, you know, we understand why you should leave. He will leave with our blessing. There's no, there's no animosity, none of that. In a way that when star players of most clubs want to leave their club, there's normally a backlash. What he's done is he's painted Levy as the, as the villain here. So if Levy blocks that deal or makes it problematic, Levy will be seen as the person that's being horrible to Harry Kane, England's golden boy. How can you let, how can you not let him go? But Levy's a businessman. And also, Levy doesn't care about being painted as a villain. It's been happening for 10 years. He doesn't care. So I don't think he'll be bothered about that. But Kane's played a very good role here. Can I just go on a limb here and say, I think Harry Kane's at Spurs next year. I think Harry Kane will be at Tottenham next year because Daniel Levy wants 150 million for Harry Kane, and he's not gonna he's not gonna come down on that. And I'm I'm not sure who can put up 150 million this summer. So I think there's a strong chance that Harry Kane actually st will still be there at, at Spurs next year, just by default, by the fact that I just don't see anybody paying 150. What may happen is United may say, for example, all right, we'll give you 60 million plus Martial and Bailly. Maybe that is a, something that can compromise because Tottenham need defenders, they'll need a striker, and they get 60 mil. Maybe. But I think I think Daniel Levy will not be wavering on what he wants for Harry Kane for sure. Yeah, it's an interesting one because yeah, I was told, told a couple of weeks ago from someone who I suspect knows what he's talking about that actually Harry Kane had agreed his own personal terms with Manchester City. And so, you know, we'll see how this these things pan out. What's your view on it, Rich? Well, I think Jordan's made a good point in the sense that will will Harry Kane even be able to leave? You know, he's still got three years left on, on his contract. So Spurs hold all the bargaining power here. Spurs hold all, all, all the chips. And it will be really difficult to to get him out of the door. As you say, who 
has the 150 million to stump up his, his fee. Only a select number of clubs. You probably expect in the Premier League you're looking at Chelsea and the two Manchester the two Manchester clubs. If he goes to Chelsea, you know, the fi- how are the fans gonna react to that? Or how can he even want to go to Chelsea? So you're probably looking at, as you mentioned, Man City there. You've spoken about personal terms, you know, and under the last international duty, you know, who's asking the Manchester City players, you know, what life was like up there. So you can see where where his head is at already. It's just a case of a battle of wills. As you say, Spurs hold all, all, all the keys here, all the chips. And while Kane wants to get this done before the Euros, <laughs> I can't see this happening. You know, Euros is, is less than a month away. It's not going to get done in that in that in that time. So I think it'll be something that will rumble on and on and on. And if if a deal is to be done, it will have to be players plus cash because, as you say, who's going to stump up 150 million in in this in this era? It'd be very difficult. Just just briefly, yeah, I also think that the money is important here because if Harry Kane goes to Euros and scores six seven goals, has a brilliant Euros, Daniel Levy will be saying, "All right, I want 25 million more." <laughs> the price has gone up now. Do you know what I mean? And and equally, if it's a, if it's a, a domestic club, that also I think will make him go hardline. I think he's much more likely to get a move if he can convince a Barcelona or a Bayern Munich or a Real Madrid, who are also broke, if they can come into the mix. I think that is a better way of getting Levy to do a deal than 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 a domestic team. So I just I think if he has a good 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 summer this year, that in a way could backfire on on Harry Kane. Yeah, these. Um... These deals are pretty much, aren't they, smoke and mirrors in many ways. A lot goes on underneath the surface and you have individuals speaking on players' behalves or clubs' behalves. So, yeah, let's wait to see what uh, what transpires. It's interesting, Everton, who end the season at Manchester City, when you look at them, they've made a net loss, Rich, on transfers since 2016 of 346 million euros, which is apparently the sixth biggest in Europe, although I've not actually counted. Are they just being protected at the moment by the Ancelotti factor? It's a good question because if you look at it, you know, from from, from the outside in, you know, some of their performances this season haven't haven't been been good enough despite this investment. Now, at the start of the season, when they brought in, you know, the likes of Alan Decore and most notably James Rodriguez, I think we were all very excited. I mean, that on paper is a fantastic midfield with all three different players given all different attributes and something that we thought would take Everton forward, especially as they started the season quite well. You're probably looking at thinking, OK, they've got this star quality, especially in James, you know, and they've got this, this, this star quality manager. What's next? And while we've seen the likes of, you know, obviously Ben Godfrey came in as well and he's done well, we've seen Calvert-Lewin and, and, and Mason Holgate improve on his watch. But what we're also seeing is inconsistency. Their home form hasn't been good enough. You know, nine defeats at home is, for a club like Everton, not what they want, not, not, not where they need to be. And if they'd even won one or even two of those games they would be right in contention for the Europa League place. I think if they'd won two of those games with six extra points, they'd be happily slotted in, in six uh, with, with, a bit of a, with a bit of a buffer. So is that inconsistency which Carlo Ancelotti needs to fix next year? I, I think it's a good point you, you raise about are they being protected by him because, you know, he's a likeable figure. But I, especially with, with fans coming back next season, we might see added scrutiny on him. I think... There is a project that he's looking to, you know, you can see what he's trying to do there. But, yeah, it's an important summer this year because you mentioned about the net loss and it's, it's something that they that they do need to address. Of course, you know, that you've got Fahad Mashiri who's happy to keep investing in the club, but they're under tight FFP restrictions. So be interesting to see what they can do with, with the money this summer. But, as you say, you can see what they're trying to do there, but... The issues with consistency uh, are lingering hard and they're something that they really need to address if they're going to have a good season next year. Yeah. Well, it looks like West well, West Ham will qualify in sixth if they don't lose at home to Southampton on Sunday. They've been linked with Tammy Abraham, probably not at £45 million. Is it essential, Jordan, that they sign David Moyes up to a longer-term contract as soon as possible and he also retains control of recruitment, which under that ownership has, let's say, been a bit quixotic from time to time. 
No, for sure. I, th I think it is. I think Everton are maybe the only team that could rival West Ham of the top clubs in the Premier League for shocking signings over the last 10 years. Their, their, their recruitment has been so, there's been so many duds and expensive duds as well. And I think that if they can keep David Moyes, A, at the club, but under the premise that he can have a strong say on who comes in and how the team is run, I think they're, they're, they, you know, they could be onto a good thing here. I think sixth place would be a really good finish for West Ham. It's been, a, it's been a good year for West Ham, I think. And I think there are interesting parallels between West Ham and Everton, who always flatter to, to deceive. But this time, West Ham actually have, you know, have, have stepped up. I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to give West Ham full praise. I mean, I, I, in the context of this season, I'll give them praise because them finishing sixth and you know flirting with top four from, for a large part of the season, I think deserves credit. But... Let's see next year how it goes. <laughs> and I know a lot of the West Ham fans get really offended and angry when the, the suggestion is raised that the team is doing really well because there's no fans in the ground. No, it's not about that, it's not about that. I mean, I wonder if that is an element of it as well. And when the fans do return to the ground, I wonder if the, the, the dynamic and the support that the, the, the team, that the players give to the team in good times and bad, I wonder if that does have a, a difference on whether they can maintain this position and, and kick on even more so. But I think David Moyes is, has proven on two occasions now, two stints at West Ham, he's capable of getting that team into European positions and possibly more. I think for next year now, the target, I was saying targets about West, uh, Leicester City earlier on. If I'm the, the West Ham owners, I'm saying we want a cup. We want a cup. Yeah, we would take finishing 10th next year if he can win the Carabao Cup or the FA Cup. Leicester have done it. Leicester should be the model for a team like Everton and indeed West Ham. So I think that next year should be Moyes' target and remit. But I, yeah, I agree. I think it only works if he's allowed to have, you know, the, the lion's share of the say on how that club is run. Yeah. I'd like to end, if I could, on a, on a couple of broader issues. The first is a, is a very familiar story, Richard. Champions League final ticket prices. In this case, this year, Category 1... Tickets are £515. Uh, then they go down from £386.50, £154.50 to Category 4, which is £60. So much for UEFA's rhetoric about fans mattering most, eh? It's always the case, isn't it, Mike? You know, as you mentioned, the, the rhetoric is always fans first, but the, the reality is, is quite the opposite. I mean, to, to be fair, I mean, the, the Cat 3 and Cat 4 prices aren't too bad, but as we always see and we have seen and we will continue to see, fans are, are always going to be secondary. You know, and, and I think a big... It was really interesting when there was this whole debate about where the final would be held and you know there was a brief uh, a flirtation that it would be held held in 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 the uk a big drawback and i guess one of the main reasons why it's not now is the fact that um you know uefa's dignitaries however many thousand they wanted to invite to the game didn't want to, to isolate in, in the uk after and it just goes to show in in these times you know do we need to have that amount of dignitaries if any at at, at this game do do we need that Probably not. Of course, you know, you want European final, probably the whole world yours to, to travel to a, a European stadium and, and have that event there. But that was just an example to me of fans of secondary because if there were restrictions on travel and you couldn't go, you know, to, to various places, then, of course, Wembley or another UK stadium would have been ideal. But the fans were secondary to that because UEFA wanted to look after their, their dignitaries. And that was just a prime example of where fans are just second or even third in the priorities of, of these organisations. And it's unfortunate, but um, something that is likely to continue. Yeah, I suppose the sponsors would say, well, we fund the whole shooting match anyway, so we should get looked after. You know, I, I tend to think that um, you know, fans, they're the ones who put their heart and souls into these football clubs and they deserve to be there at the biggest occasion. But I suppose we have to become used to Big picture power plays, don't we, Jordan? I'm thinking here now in terms of the FIFA meeting on Friday where Saudi Arabia, whose influence seems to be growing, let's put it like that, they're going to be the latest to call for a World Cup every two years. Arsene Wenger said the same thing a couple of months ago. 
Is this just greed and political power in the name of progress? 100%. And, and, and we, we, we know that we know what it is and, and, and why they're suggesting this. And the, the saddest thing for me, Mike, is that it's actually killing my enjoyment of football. This season, I'll be honest, I'll be blunt and just be, be very frank. I've actively swerved watching so many games. There's just too many games on. There's too many games on. And I think that the idea that, you know, most games are exciting and great football and patterns of play and top corner goals is a myth. M m let's be honest, most games aren't good. But, you know, you, you kind of stick through it with your team in the hope that the one in five will be a 5 nil win against your rivals or you'll win it in the 89th minute. That's fine. But watching, the, there's football every single day. And I understand why, where it's a COVID season, it's a, it's a truncated season. I, I understand why there's more, more fixtures. So I get, I get the why. But it's really, really, I, I've just, we've just gorged on so much football. And it's, 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 it's hurt my, my love of the game because there's so much of it. And you see the quality isn't always as good as we'd like it to be. You extend the World Cup. And I just think it's a, it's a grander scale of that. It's just more games. And I think not only will the football fans eventually become like, OK, this is football fatigue now. I think the players will start realising, hang on a minute, we can't play every single day. This is, they're killing us. We're human beings. The quality of the football will come down because people will be injured more and less tired. And, and, and I think that what will eventually happen is what you'll start seeing is maybe a similar thing to what Van Dijk's done. And again, I don't know how bad, how bad his injury is. I think you'll start getting players deciding and prefer and making giving preferential treatment to their clubs over their countries. If if they've got to play in major tournaments every other year, the burden that puts on them and not having a summer off, I think you'll start seeing players deciding. Okay, cool. I'm going to take a summer out. I'll sacrifice a World Cup or a Euros if it means I get a really good season with Man City, Arsenal, Tottenham, Madrid, whoever it may be. So not only am I as a football fan suffering, just me personally, maybe I don't know how others feel about this, but I personally am feeling a, a way about watching so much football anyway. But I think the players, they're the ones I think will eventually will speak out on this and be like, hang on a minute. Uh, someone, someone, was it Gundogan recently? when the Super League was proposed, was speaking out about they're just rinsing players. And it's like, it's too much. It's just too much. Well, you've got a you know, World Cup, which is going to have 48 teams, which seems to be a contradiction in terms to me. I suppose it's a sad fact that those in positions of influence at the top level of football can't be trusted to act for the common good. Despite their pretensions, they've got the dignity of ferrets fighting in a sack. Change for me is looking inevitable because I'm a realist, but it won't be in the best interests of the game. How can we, as fans and allies of the game, fight that? I'm not so sure, if I'm honest. I'd welcome your ideas. In the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Richard for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.